turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been preaching Bible books for 47 years now, and sometimes it's not easy because uh, the book may pick up a theme you don't want to talk about. It may, uh, that's one reason I picked Bible books, because I let God pick the subject and not, a lot, and not me. And so I just deal with it. In chapter 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians is considered by some scholars to be a separate epistle. It comes across uh, harsh. Uh, it comes because... It is a section that, in the book, you've got chapters 1 through 7, he describes his ministry. 8 through 9, he's taking an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Chapter 10 through 13, he is uh, defending his ministry against the critics. And it's primarily Judaizers, false teachers, that have infiltrated, they usually dog his steps wherever he goes and starts a church. It will not be long, but the Judaizers are there to undo the work. And uh, look at chapter 11 and verse 4 and see what kind of uh, false apostles he was dealing with. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel, they're giving you a different gospel, another way to know Christ, other than the one you accepted, you put up with it easily. You're very tolerant of guys lying to you in the name of the gospel, lying to you in the name that they are apostles, they're lying. They're under, uh, they say Paul's not an apostle. He has no authority. His message isn't from God. So here's what happens. It's a very awkward place to be. Uh, to defend the gospel, he has to defend the messenger of the gospel. Paul brought the gospel when they were nothing but pagans. None of these Judaizers were around. None of the false guys showed up. But now that a work is going, that a congregation is formed, they've decided to come in and undercut Paul and not just say he's a little off. He's not the apostles that we are. We have letters from Jerusalem that says we're apostles. So as it were, in chapter 10 through 13, he puts on apostolic gloves and he steps in the ring. And he's going to do some things that are so self-revealing that uh, it's the most personal inside look that even apostles live with criticism. And more than that, their church was already being undermined by false teachers. Now, the big challenge I have is what in the world about this is relevant to your life? You came in here, you want some immediate answers, and you're not an apostle. Someone asked, what is 
uh, an apostle, and they said it's the father of an epistle. So that's about as much as you know right now. And so I want to look at three things in the passage. First of all, spiritual warfare is described. Spiritual warfare, verses 1 through 6. Two, spiritual authority. <clears throat> spiritual authority is defended. Thirdly, uh, spiritual ministry is measured, is measured. So, uh, he's going to describe spiritual warfare, verses 1 through 6. I am at war, he says. Uh, notice that. We pick it up. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, that's sarcasm, but bold towards you went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be bold as I expect to be towards some people, this opposing minority, who think that we live by the standards of the world, and that word world ought to be the flesh. They're saying, I am acting out of fleshly motives. I, I'm uh, in the flesh. Uh, I'm not even a guy that walks in the spirit. So they question my motives and my modus operandi. For though we live in the flesh, and that is his humanity, uses flesh two ways. In my human existence, I'm not walking after the ethical sin nature. Though I'm a human being, I'm not walking after fleshly desires. That's what he's saying. But he's being charged that he does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world or the flesh. The weapons. Ah. So we now are taking on military battle language. The weapons. What does that mean that he went around with a large sword as an apostle? The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the flesh. On the contrary, they have divine power. Mm, now listen to this. What weapons I am using have divine power behind them to do what? To demolish strongholds. Where are the strongholds? It's the language of a fort. He actually says, I use a spear to capture a fort and to take captives. Well, where are the strongholds? Watch. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Majority, keep obeying. When we get there, we will deal with the disobedience. We are in a battle, we are in a war, and it's a war for the mind. 
We're going after mental strongholds. We're going after wrong thinking, wrong arguments, a thought that have exalted themselves above the knowledge of God. Other words, it's secret knowledge. It's, uh, you remember Adam and Eve? If you eat the fruit, you'll get to know things that only God knows. Superior knowledge. It's quite interesting when you read the literature on spiritual warfare, they'll always put it, you versus a demon. I'm in a struggle. There's no demon mentioned here. No demons. Now, there could be demonic influence, but the way it shows up is in the thinking, is the viewpoints, uh, is the philosophy. Uh, they're, they're coming in with another gospel. Uh, they have different uh, ways to measure what an apostle is. Uh, I've been engaged in warfare in all of my ministry. I'm taking on people that say you're saved by works. You're saved by being Jewish. You're saved by merit. Uh, I am, uh, I'm engaged with Greek philosophers who despise the gospel. They don't think a, a Jewish man dying on a cross pays for anybody's sins. They don't believe a thing I'm saying. And to reject me is why they reject this message. And I'm in a battle for their minds. I want to say this. One of the deaths of the church today is to be a mindless Christian. Uh, that's a nice way of saying dumb saints. Saints that don't know anything about why they believe what they believe. That uh, I'm amazed. One of our brothers came to me. I challenged some men at our deacons, elders meeting. I said, so many of you don't even know what you've got in Christ. You can't name me anything you've got in Christ. Uh, I'd say in this church, 95% of this church doesn't know what justification by faith is. And I've been teaching it for 47 years, but you still remain mindless about it. You've never made it a priority to find out what it means. And this man came to me a few weeks ago. He had a list. He found 11 things he was in Christ. I said, man, that's fantastic. Keep looking. There's about 100 more. What do you know? What do you know about the gospel? We're trying to get you to witness sometimes, and you can't even explain it. Do you think there are such Christians as that? Did you come to church to be called a dummy? No. But I'm telling you, the battle, the warfare is for the mind, for the thinking, for the viewpoint. Let, let's, let's just say, for example, today, in our day, do you think we're battling for the minds of young people that are buying in a different worldview than what you grew up with? Uh, let's uh, let's get, take an example. Let's say evolution. Okay, I'm against it. I'm for it. Just think of that view coming out of the 1800s with Darwin. Uh, we can foo-foo it away, but it probably affects every biology department in every university in the country. It's assumed. We're seen as the dumb dummies, the church, that we're some far-right, obscure uh, 
ignorant bunch because we haven't got on board. Evolution affects your worldview, where we came from, humanity, all of that. Uh, that's why abortion ought to be easy. It's just an evolving piece of matter anyway. So don't get all uptight. So you've got that as a grid. We've got this view that's a part of culture. If you're, let's say, let's put you under 30. Uh, a philosophy of what is maturity is to be tolerant. And why? Why? I mean, we, we kind of, uh, uh, your kids have been holding that view forever. Be tolerant, Dad. Uh, let up. But it's a, all in ethics, it's a permeating view. Uh, no matter what the view is at the table, your maturity is measured by your tolerance of the opposing view. Why be tolerant? Because there is no truth to start with. What's to get uptight about? You're just as entitled to your view as I am mine, right? So we're both entitled to be telling a lie and still respect each other. Two plus two equals nine. Well, that's your view. Well, man, that's okay. That's the way you feel about it. I'm not going to disagree. What if I made change for you at the bank with a tolerant view? You gave me 100, and I feel you only have 20 coming back. I just feel it. It's just in my ethics. Just when you said, uh, you, you shortchanged me. No, it's the way we do math here. It's just kind of going how you feel for the day. I'll take a cut. You're crazy. You better give me the exact change. There is no exact change. This is a tolerant bank. You laugh at it. Let's go over here to ethics, intolerance. Some apologists have said we have not a leg to stand on with a tolerant view of ethics to ever bring Hitler to trial because we have no way of saying what he did was wrong. If you want to kill blacks and you want to kill gypsies and you want to kill Jews and you've got the power to do it, help yourself. It's not wrong. And you say, oh, it is wrong. Who told you it was wrong? In the tolerant philosophy, nothing's wrong. Except that the view you just said is wrong. Because there's no moral law. There's nothing agreed upon. Natural law, we call it. That where do we, and yet all uh, courtroom proceedings for centuries has operated off of a mosaic ethic that there are things that are wrong. There are things that are wrong. It's wrong to molest your sister according to the law of Moses. And they came over, incest is wrong. It's not today. Not on a philosophical argument basis. You act shocked because you're over 30. The world's changed. The world doesn't think like you. It doesn't think like me. We grew up with, even in family systems that were not Christian, there was an ethic there of right and wrong. I'm talking about the way people think. 
Let me ask you this. Who shaped your thinking? We all think something. We've all got a view on money, sex, morality, gender, uh, I mean life, how to raise children. Where did we, what shaped you? How did you get there? Somebody shaped you. Some of you, maybe the Bible. Some of you, your parents, hopefully. Uh, and uh, they call it epistemology. What was it that determined what you came to believe? And Paul is saying, I'm in a war. I'm in the philosophy department of Greece. I went to Corinth. The Greek world is right there. Athens is only about 40 miles north. When I came to town, I got into a war and a battle in the arena for the thoughts of the Corinthians that there is a God. He will judge. Right and wrong exists, and there's battle. And it's the same battle we're in today. Look, at the average American watches six hours a day of TV. Six hours. The average American, I'd say that I know, does well to read two books a year. The average Christian has not read their Bible through in a year. Uh, they, they keep the family Bible on the TV, but they don't crack it. They don't know their Bible. They don't study their Bible. They're, they're dumb stool pigeons to be deceived. Why don't you know? what justification is. Why don't you know your Bible? What's keeping the battle for the mind? The devil wants your mind. He wants you to watch uh, Fox News all day because that shapes your mind. And you could be a red-hot fanatic uh, Republican conservative. So what? That's not what our age is dying for. They need the gospel. They need Christ. They need to be saved. Are you full of that message? No, I, I could talk to some of you. bleed politics. You bleed. You're mad about something. Most old people are mad about something all the time. They call us cranky Christians. Yeah, all these young people are just going to hell. I know. Could you defend the faith? Could you step in the ring with them? Let me tell you why this is wrong. Let me show you the biblical view. Let me show you. Let's have a Bible study together. Let's see the truth project together. Have you heard a truth? The truth sets you free. And Paul said, I'm storming mental stronghold, mental castles. And I'm going in there with the spear of the gospel. And I'm trying to break the chains that have incarcerated you. I want to lead you to the liberty you find in Christ. And it's a fight. It's a fight for the souls of people. For the minds of people. And it's a fight in your own life to think right. Whatsoever is holy, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is gentle, think on these things and the peace of God shall guard your hearts and minds. Paul said, practice what I'm telling you and you'll have peace. The battle is what will I think on this week? What have, what have I been thinking on? Am I thinking right? You remember Romans 12, 2, stop being conformed to the age thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
He's got to start. The Christian life is lived from the shoulders up. There's your heart in the Bible. You, the heart of man is between his ears. It's not this. That's a pump. That's a physical heart. Your spiritual heart is between your ears. It's how you think. It's how you think. He goes on. In the midst of this battle, I'm having these false apostles say, I don't have any authority. I'm just a Johnny come lately. They've got their credentials. They're doing good. And he finally takes up the argument. He said, uh, wait a minute here. You are judging by appearances, verse 7. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Here he's having to defend, I really am a Christian. They're, they're questioning, who are you, Paul? We don't accept your credentials. You haven't, he said, wait, let's first of all get this, I do know him. Think of it. Having to, it'd be about like me being on trial and I'd have to first give my testimony to convince you that I was a Christian. That's what he's doing. Now watch this. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Then he quotes their sarcasm of him. He said, you write bold letters, but you're basically a coward when you see his face to face. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I'll be as bold when I'm with you as when I write your letter. But he says something here powerful. I have authority to do what I'm doing is what he's telling them. But he says, my authority is not like the Gentiles who can put a sword to your throat and subjugate you. God's given us authority to build you up. To build you up. Um, some of you hate to go to doctors. I mean, nobody in their spare time says, I need to go see the doctor. But uh, men are especially hate to go to doctors. They can be in the last stages of something before they make an appointment. They're known for that. It's, it's quite a, a submission to go to somebody and say, I put my uh, personal biology before you, and I trust you to get me better. Had a man share with me today, uh, they think cancer is in a certain part of his body, could be life-threatening. And uh, the question is, Will he give that man any authority over his body to prescribe? Or would he say, you don't have any authority over me. Well, go ahead and die of cancer. You can't get any access to my ability unless you're willing to submit to my authority. Does that, are you following me? To see, you're, you're autonomous Americans. Nobody tells you what to do. That's our makeup. We've never been under a king. You know, we, we threw him out of town in Philadelphia. You don't tax us anymore. We're very autonomous, independent people. It's terrible for church life because you don't know what community is. We're, we're fine without you. 
I used to tell the Ross family, you're terribly hard to pastor because you don't ever call and ask for help because you're the generation that came through a depression. You're independent to a fault. Who, who would you put? You know, it's scary. You don't like to think of it, but I guess you're submitting to the authority of the pilot when you get on his plane. Well, that's scary. There's a lot of different authorities that we have. Uh, I don't like to say it, but on April 15th, I'm under the authority of the United States government. They make the tax code, not me. I better cough it up or figure it out. There's a lot of different authority. And here Paul said, God's given me authority to be an apostle, church planner, and I've used my authority to build you up, not to dominate you, not to hurt you. And uh, authority is a tricky thing. We need people with it, but it is a most abusive kind of authority. It can really ruin the person. It's not based here in the gospel. It's not based upon titles, not based upon muscle, weapons. Uh, it's uh, who has authority in your life for Christ. When this church first began, we had so many young believers. Uh, they had no uh, tact. Uh, they had lots of zeal. And they were, uh, you'd come to church, and it would be, uh, where you're reading in the Word. They would just do that for fellowship. They weren't meaning to be offensive. Where you're reading in the Word. Might catch someone at the door, and, and people would say, that's none of your business. And, and it would, they'd come to me and say, man, did we do something wrong? I said, no, they're just not used to being asked. Uh, you know, it's like, how's your sex life? I just asked, are you reading Romans? I didn't ask you about your sex life. That's not a one. I'm a private Christian. No one's business. You're so private because you're not doing it. You don't want to be asked. Nobody in my life. How can we be into each other's lives, encouraging, instructing, uh, able to counsel each other? No, no, no. It's none of your business. You stay out of my life. I have no spiritual authority because you're either a big rebel or you don't know the uh, power and the advantage of having spiritual authority, not to make you a cult follower, but to build you up in Christ, to show you the Word, to teach you, to model what the Christian life ought to be. He goes from that subject that he does have that subject, and he finally, that he has that authority, and he, he ends the chapter by saying, by the way, you guys love to brag on each other. And I hate to do it, and they're doing chapter 11. I hate to do it, but I'm going to tell you a thing or two about what God's done with me. You guys are questioning my credentials. He says, to him, verse 12, we dare not classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. The Pharisees, he said, they, they love the praise of one another. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Who do we measure ourselves by? I want to measure uh, maybe ministry, my Christian life. Who who do you go to? I, I came up with a line on this. 
if the only member of your fan club is you, you're in trouble. If the only one that thinks you're great. And so he's saying, we don't run with people that always brag on themselves. We're in the bragamony crowd. What does he do? We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere that God gave us. He is, and we came to Corinth first. You Judaizers and my critics trying to undo me. Where were you when I planted this church? God brought me to Corinth, not you. I don't need your commendation. God led me here to plant this precious church you're trying to destroy. And so he goes through there, and I'm going to preach the gospel in regions beyond. Then he says, we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Uh, if the Lord was to come into the meeting today and take on physical appearance and said, I'm going to measure this church. Uh, he did seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, <clears throat> how would he measure this church? Let's say as a congregation. Uh, scares me to death. I wouldn't book him to come in. I don't think we'd pass. I, I'm too pessimistic. Just, I fight to keep uh, in love with him myself fight to keep a boil, keep to, so he wants to come in and he wants to measure each one of us. How would he measure us? You know, I'll say that uh, as a pastor, people are always measuring us. You know, we like the sermon, we don't. You know the way they measure you, uh, uh, if you're a preacher, you know how they measure you? They measure you by statistics. Uh, is your church large or small? Well, if it's small, you're a small preacher. If it's large, you're a large preacher. Uh, what's your budget? How much money comes in? How much money are you making? All this kind of stuff. All this kind of stuff. I read a book years ago by a name of a guy named Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes eventually became the president of Wheaton College, where Billy Graham went to school in Wheaton, Illinois, right out of Chicago. Eventually became the pastor of the Wheaton Bible Church. Kent, when he graduated from, uh, I think it was Talbot in Southern Cal, when he uh, graduated, the denomination wanted him to plant a church. He and his wife took the assignment. Uh, somewhere in Southern California, they, they went to a plant and they went to whatever city, and they poured themselves into it. I think they were there about two or three years, two or three years. Uh, failed terribly, did not take hold. They closed the doors after three years. Uh, they were exhausted, whipped. Uh, morale was shot, wondered if he was called to the ministry. Uh, the shot. And uh, he said, one day, sitting down, thought, 
Well, this didn't take. The denomination was disappointed. They were underwriting him to do it. And so he just said, um, I'm a total failure. And all kinds of big churches in the area, if you know anything about Southern Cal, a lot of big churches. He finally sat down and he began to write what became his book. And he said, all I know is uh, right now, I still love the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. I'll go wherever he wants me to go. Two, I love his word. I can't stay out of it. Three, I love my wife. Four, I want to be the kind of dad that God would honor me to raise these children. Uh, five, I've not run after another woman. I'm true to my wife. Six, though the money's been low, I've not cheated. Uh, I'm doing this. And he went through and he said, uh, the ministry needs to be delivered from the success syndrome. That numbers, everybody likes me, they don't like me. When did God say that will be the measurement of our ministry? Will it be faithfulness? Will it be uh, preach the word, do the word? I had a man call me from Oregon in a town of no more, than, I don't think it's 50,000 people. You know, there's not many big towns in Oregon, Portland and a few of those. But he said, Phil, we have seven pulpits vacated in our city due to moral failure. Seven pastors at one time committed moral failure and the pulpits are vacant. Who cares how big the church was? Who cares how many numbers? Were you true to your wife? Were you true to your God? But once you get in the public arena, everybody's measuring you. I like him. He's as good as Swindoll or he's bad as. He's as good as bad as. I, I came under severe uh, satanic attack on Easter morning. I don't think I ever experienced anything quite like it. I, for my text that morning was 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 10, the gospel. Died, buried, rose again, seen of many brethren. I am the least of the apostles, but I work harder than... Uh, verse, I just quoted to you all day, and, but I'm there praying in the front room and asking God, are there a lot, of, a lot of visitors today and this and that, go fishing, get people saved. And all of a sudden this attack came and said, you know you're not very good at evangelism. You're not very good at getting people to make public professions. You can ask them to raise their hands, stand up, walk forward. You've never been very good at that, even when you were trying to be an evangelist. So uh, there's no need of you even trying today because you're not good at evangelism anyway, so don't expect anyone to be saved. And so I was in this battle, and I'm kind of dreading it. And I said, Lord, what's going on? And he says, you're in the grip of pride. 
you move the power of the gospel from the message to the messenger. You're acting like if you could preach good enough, they'd get saved. You don't know what I'm talking about because you don't preach. But if I could preach good enough, we'll get them saved this morning. But the devil's already telling me, oh, no, you won't. You're not good at evangelism. You're not good at getting public profession. So I'm over here saying, oh, if I could just be a better preacher. And God said, you're in the grip of pride. When did I ever say you save people? When did you ever save anybody? Do you believe my gospel can save them? Do you think the gospel can save them? Not your personal evangelism, your personal witness, your personal or some good preacher. So I just, I move the battle over to me. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And, and you're not going to get saved under any kind of preacher if God doesn't draw you. And he's got the drawing power, friend. And you here that don't know the Lord, you're never going to be saved hearing me preach until you believe the gospel. It's the gospel that saves. The gospel. But the church, even us, you may not even believe it works because you haven't seen your loved ones saved. You haven't seen the neighbors saved. And we're losing our confidence, maybe. Does the gospel save? We're in this battle, but I'll hear Paul say, I will not boast in my ministry about what God's done. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And he's going right back to Jeremiah where he said in chapter 9, let not the wise man boast that he's wise, nor the strong man that he's strong, nor the wealthy man that he's rich, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. Is that your boast? I end with this. My father's the only man that I have. My dad is the only guy I knew that did a lot of stuff. He's the only man I ever knew that would just say, Let, bear with me while I boast in the Lord. I never, I never heard anyone do that before. He, he just stopped. He said, just bear with me now. I want to boast in the Lord. And that word boast in the Greek is boast or glory in the Lord. And he'd start enumerating whatever was on his mind, what he had done for he and my mother, what, how God had brought him, maybe a recent answer. But he said, just bear with me while I, you'll bear with me, won't you, while I boast in the Lord. Oh, I wish we would do it. Wouldn't that be something in the middle of a murmuring session say, could I just stop? I want to I wanna brag on the Lord. When I read the life story of Martin Luther King by Stephen Oates, he received a uh, writing award for doing such a great job. Uh, he tells about when they went to uh, Oslo to receive his Nobel Peace Prize. And they awarded it to him. And he takes an entourage of people with him there to receive this uh, award for being uh, so noble and civil rights and whatever. And he goes there, took mother and Father King, who had been the pastors there at Ebenezer Baptist down in Birmingham. They went with a bunch of other people, and 
when he got the award and everything, they went back to the hotel, and some of them had already packed champagne and all that kind of stuff to do the celebrating. When they got back to the hotel, they started busting out of the champagne and everything. They all wanted to drink to it, and all of a sudden, Daddy King, his father, said, whoa, 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 he said, uh, could, could we hold on the booze a little bit? He said, I want to tell you, I can tell you where this boy's mother and I knelt in the red dirt of Georgia and asked for a son, and God gave us a son. And he started enumerating their struggle and all that. When they got through, they sang hymns, and they left the champagne bottles corked. Said, champagne didn't bring us this far. Champagne didn't get us out of slavery. But God did. And I want to tell you, some of you need to start boasting in the Lord if he's done anything. Stop your complaining. He has done great things. Psalms 34 said, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We will boast in the Lord. It's no time to whine about he's died. No, he's hungry to hear you praise him. Has he done anything? And if you get to boasting, do any of you ever invite anyone to come to church? You didn't do that. You know, we've been having a lot of people. They're either dying or moving or thinking about it. So if you think about dying, hold it off a little bit. Wait for a PM service. Uh, we need to be inviting people. Of course, all of our men, that their wives are away, they're now at McDonald's trying to get Sunday dinner. But you know what? We've been having a lot of people move. People die. Times are changing, honey. Will he find the faith when he comes again? He said that, well, I find the faith, is what he said, on the earth. Will people think right if they get around you? Our Father, help us to think your thoughts. Help us to not go AWOL in the midst of this spiritual warfare of the last days. May we be soldiers of the cross and displayers of the truth. For Christ's sake, amen. God bless you. The, the sisters come back. They come back. You're dismissed. Get up, stretch, go. Shake hands with somebody. Say it was a great sermon. No, you don't have to do that.